Hey everyone, it's Heather. I'm so excited about our new resource for single women, Authentically You. One of the most challenging parts of life is navigating relationships. This can be especially true for women who have been tainted by negative sexual experiences and mistakes from their past, or when the struggle with porn and masturbation takes hold and won't let go. This leaves them feeling distant from God, separated by the weight of shame and regret. If this is you, you're not alone. Authentically You was written specifically for single and college-aged women, those who are on the working career path and those who are in college. This 20-lesson curriculum is easily adaptable to a busy work schedule or a college semester system. Through this group experience, you'll explore how your past pain and trauma contribute to distorted beliefs and an unhealthy thought life. You'll uncover the role your family of origin plays in your past and current behaviors and address the issues that perpetuate compulsive and addictive patterns. And through the use of weekly exercises, strategic tools, and self-care focus, you'll learn how to live in health, how to live as your true, authentic self. I know God has a plan for your life to bring you to a place of health and wholeness. If you allow it, God will do amazing things in you and through you. So pre-order today, Authentically You. Go to puredesire.org A-Y. That's puredesire.org A-Y. Welcome to the Pure Desire Podcast, where we partner with you to bring hope and freedom on your journey to purity. Before we jump into today's episode, we wanted to let you know about a brand new resource, Mended, One Couple's Journey from Betrayal to Imperfect Beauty. Mended is the story of Rick and Tiffany Bullman. This story is how God healed a marriage that was destroyed by betrayal and turned it into a powerful picture of His grace and healing. This testimony of relationship that went from broken beyond repair to rebuilt by God's mighty hand will give you practical tools on how to strengthen your marriage and find true intimacy. There is hope. When God works a miracle, anything can be mended. To pick up your copy of Mended, visit puredesire.org slash mended. Enjoy the podcast. Hey there, I'm your host, Trevor Windsor, and we're so thankful you're taking time out of your day to hang out with us. I'm here with my co-host as always, Nick Stumbo. Dum 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 dum. So simple, so simple. Yeah. Do you know where that's from? I I don't know where that's from. It's the uh, it's the farmer's insurance jingle, and I thought it would be appropriate for today because their tagline right now is "We've seen it, we've covered it," and I think that's like this podcast. We've seen it and we've covered it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good to know. Uh, today we're really excited to have a special guest with us, Mr. Michael Dye. Michael is a national level two and international certified addictions counselor. Uh, if you don't know what that means, you can Google it. You'll find it. The author, uh, he's the author of The Genesis Process, the creator of The Faster Scale, which thank you, by the way, Michael. We very much appreciate that. And we're excited to hear more about Michael and dive into his background and the resources he's created. So welcome to the PD Podcast, Michael. Okay, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I really uh, have appreciated Pure Desire over the years and what you're doing to try to stem the tide with the epidemic of... Uh, sexual addiction and uh, and how it's affecting us as a society so i i really appreciate what you're doing everywhere i go uh, you know the main thing that people are are struggling with is uh, whether it's teenagers or adults mm-hmm. is uh their confusion about their sexual identity so yeah. yeah anyway thank you for pure desire yeah thank you appreciate that 
So today we're going to get to know Michael better. We're going to talk about his resource, the Genesis process. And so, uh, Michael, let's just jump in right away. Why don't we start with some of your background and history? Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, sure. I'm, actually, I'm 73, so I've been at this for over 50 years, 38 as a Christian. I've always been just fascinated and and struggled with the, the whole dilemma and mystery of human self-destructive behavior. In other words, as human beings, when we want to change, you know, why aren't we able to change? And, you know, I did before I became a Christian, I was about 13 years in the whole 60, 70, you know, hippie movement. And I was very involved with the occult and metaphysics, Eastern religions, and did about every kind of mind expanding LSD, peyote kind of drug and traveled around the world with some of the biggest gurus. But no matter how much I did and no matter how many, you know, cosmic experiences I had, there was this emptiness in me. And it was an emptiness. It was like an itch I couldn't scratch or, or you know, like a thirst I couldn't quench. And even after these experiences, they would come back to this emptiness. And, uh, um, and so that's basically what happened. I was just laying in my bed one night and uh, I'd never read the Bible, never been in a church. And I said, you know, this emptiness was, was real aware and the painfulness of it. And I just said, you know, the only thing I haven't tried is Jesus. And I said, you know, if you can, you know, make me into the kind of person I've been trying to do all these years on my own self-effort, that I'll dump all this other stuff and follow you. And uh, next day I got up, I was a different person. Wow. And, and my whole life changed and went in a different direction. And, and I think the main thing that, that happens in us, especially with those of us who struggle with self-destructive behavior, is when we the Holy Spirit enters us, we begin to become other-centered versus self-centered. And, you know, and I think that's the evidence of, of, of Christ in us. So anyway, you know, it's a long story short. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but uh, uh, so, you know, that's what my new books are about, too, is is understanding this this pain that God gives us, this emptiness in, in us that he has designed us for relationships with him and other people. And when that gets damaged, our either willingness or ability to, you know, to trust God and people then, uh, you know, we have this, this emptiness and it's, and I really believe that almost all self-destructive addictive behavior is a way of temporarily anesthetizing the awareness of this empty place in us. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Michael, your workbook, the Genesis process has touched so many of our listeners and I know many people tuning in are just thinking about having walked through that process. And I, I think it would be really interesting for all of us to just hear some of the backstory as you shared uh, your conversion and coming to faith in Christ. How does all of that come together into this workbook? Just uh, tell us some of the backstory, if you would. Well, you know, I say after, you know, years of, of trying to work and help, you know, addictive people, you know, be able to change, I just really became enamored with trying to figure out this mystery of relapse. And of course, you know, we all know about Romans 7, you know, and, yeah. it, and that's where it started with me is I read Romans 7, and here's a guy, Paul, you know, who had the strongest attributes that humans can have. He had, you know, 
discipline and 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 self-sacrifice and he was you know really intelligent and he had tremendous faith but in Romans 7 he tells us you know in my mind I want to serve the law of God but in my behavior I keep doing the very thing I don't want to do so his conclusion was well if I'm doing the very thing I'm not I don't want to do it must be you know not me doing it it's sin in me and of course we would tell Paul he's in denial come back to be serious (laughs) (laughs) it is you doing it but what he's saying is is that there's something in me that's a, a mystery that is stronger than the me I'm aware of that causes me to do the very thing I don't want to do. Yeah. And of course, you know, Freud and the psychologists and Skinner and Jung and all these guys, you know, realize this also. And they began to say, you know, there's something in us that's causing us to do things that are self-destructive and they called it the subconscious. Hmm. So that's what psychology has been doing for the last 150 years is trying to figure out how to reprogram the subconscious to keep us from being self-destructive. And and not only that, but I think, you know, where Genesis really started was uh, God spoke to me once and we had all these relapses and I was the director of Santa Barbara Rescue Mission. So I had 85 clients and 25 staff and a couple million dollar budget and all these people kept relapsing. And then, you know, it's Christian. Well, they weren't serious or they just didn't, you know, it's not their time right now. But, you know, but I, I believe God spoke to me and he said, Michael, there's a partnership that's, that works with helping these people. And he says, Michael, it's my job to make people willing to change. But they come to you and it's your job to make them able to change. And I realized that the clients would come because of the pain in their life. And it's pain that motivates us to change. Mm-hmm. And God had done his job by motivating them and making them willing to change. But when they relapsed, how come I wasn't able able to make them change? Okay, And so I began to take re- their relapses personally and saying, you know, what did we miss with this person? Mm. And so that's where we began to really, you know, learn a lot from these relapses and and trying to come up with ways to, to prevent it, which is, of course, you know, what the Genesis books are all about, and especially the faster scale is, uh, uh, you know, and, and it's really true, you know, I mean, it's, and that's what we're finding is so effective in, in Christian counseling is when we understand, you know, the part that God does, and then the part that he expects us to do. And why I was unsuccessful all these years, I was expecting God to do my part, and I was trying to do his part, and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So once, once again, it's God's job to make people willing to change, and they come to us to make them able to change. So that's why we can learn so much from, you know, their attempts of, uh, you know their attempt to success and how they fail and uh and, and that's how genesis got written by learning this mystery of these unconscious patterns of of that people get themselves into into relapsing mm-hmm. um, right. and the other thing about relapses that we did, didn't understand and it took me from a lot of clients is you know, people don't plan on relapsing. Most of the clients I work <laughs> right. with are only aware of relapsing 10 or 15 minutes or half an hour 
maximum before they relapse. Mm -hmm. And so we said there must be this some kind of an unconscious pattern that may last for weeks or months that causes them to get to this place where they become powerless. So for some of our listeners, and, and I'm included in this, I have yet to go through the Genesis process. So this question is what... What exactly is the Genesis process and how does it help men and women break free from addictions? Just talk about the resource uh, itself. Well, I think the, the lights went on when they're trying to understand this this mystery of, of why we do the very things we don't want to do. And it dawned on me from what the Bible says. It says, basically, if you want to change who you are and what you do, you have to change your heart. So I'm going okay, but what is the heart? Where's the heart? And how does it get damaged? And, and what's, and what's its role in relapsing? And then I got in Romans 10 in Romans 10, it says with a heart uh, for, uh, for with the heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. So what Paul is telling us is the insight that he has is that the our belief systems are in our heart and those belief systems result in the way we act uh, and that's what jesus does when we invite jesus into our life we invite him into our heart well that was a mystery why 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 do we do that i think we should invite him into our head or our soul or someplace you know? but what i began to realize is jesus says if you become my disciples okay that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free and what does this truth set us free from? It sets us free from lies. Okay? And, and these lies that we believe are just distortions that come out of usually early childhood trauma in our life. So the, the way it works is, is I began to understand through studying all the brain you know, imaging that most of what we attribute to the heart is called the limbic system in the brain and it's our survival brain so what happens with addiction is when our survival brain or limbic system okay associates an emotion you know like anger or a behavior like perfectionism or workaholism or a substance you know like alcohol and drugs when it begins to associate those things with survival okay it says, you know, we need these to cope and we need these things to survive. Then it creates a unique, a unique emotion. And that unique emotion is only created where real or imagined survival of the stake, and it's called a craving. So, and the craving is produced by the limbic system believing that I need this behavior or substance to survive. So the challenge was, is if we can change the limbic system belief so that it no longer creates a craving, then you can prevent relapse because relapse is all about craving. So it's pretty simple, but not easy. No. That if no. you can eliminate craving, you can eliminate relapse. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. So that was the challenge is the limbic system is subconscious it doesn't respond to words okay it only responds in its program through experiences so the challenge was is how do we use words to make them experiential that can reprogram the 
the distortions of our you know value self-worth and identity that has been uh, programmed into our limbic system and so that's why jesus says you know if you, if you come my disciple you're in the truth and invite me into your heart so jesus comes into our heart rather than trying to help us change our behaviors before we can become to him and he says if i come into your heart which is your limbic system then i'm going to begin to change your belief systems and your belief systems as i change them are going to begin to set you free from the painful behaviors or sin mm -hmm. that caused you to come to me in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind cool. of the, the, you know, the neurobiology of being born again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's amazing that what Jesus says in scripture has a very real world uh, impact on our bodies and brains that we tend to think of it in, in simply the spiritual sense. But um, as we all know, we're not just spirit, we're, we're soul and body, we're, and we're one connected unit. And so to have that faith in Christ that transforms us, to know that there is something actually happening in our body and our brains, um, it's just awesome to see the way God has designed us to work like that. Yeah, and that's where we found that freedom really works, is this partnership that I've been learning and still learning about, you know, the partnership with God and what his area is and what my area is and how when those things work together properly that people begin to get some healing so as far as changing these belief systems okay, is it it's my job you know through the genesis process and things tools we use to identify the belief system that's driving the behavior mm -hmm. okay? And we look at how it affects them, which makes them how, how does it make them act and feel, okay? And then also how it affects the relationships. And then the simplicity of it, which seemed too simple for me in the beginning, was we take these belief systems and we and we take them to the Lord, okay? And when the Lord speaks truth into these lies and distortions, it it changes the limbic systems. You know, belief system. It's called the healing of memories, or you know, our 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 you know, healing of of of, uh, of, of body wounds. You know, because our body feels things, even when our mind doesn't know why. Hmm. And so, because I could tell them the truth, and I'm just a truth. I can say, well, don't believe that. You're really a good person, or whatever, right? And and they go, yeah, I understand that. But when, but Jesus is not a truth. He is the truth. And when he speaks truth into the lies in our lives it sets us free hmm. that's so good that's you know how we teach and train counselors to take people through the one-on-one -on -one process to to not w work on controlling behaviors you know self-destructive behaviors but to look at at addictive and, and destructive behaviors as symptoms okay and work on the causes so yeah. for example in genesis if somebody has a you know, an eating disorder, you know, an overeating or something, and rather than try and get them to diet and, you know, and, and discipline and all that, we just simply ask the right question. And really change begins from asking the right questions. So the right question in that area would be, why do you eat when you're not hungry? When you answer that question, real recovery begins. Yeah. 
Yeah. So Michael, for a lot of people in the Genesis process, the the tool that really is transformational for them is the faster scale. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I've had men that go through groups and say, just learning the faster scale and applying that to my life was worth the whole group just to, to have that tool. It's, it's been that important to them. So talk us through that scale a little bit. I mean, I know it relates to everything you've been sharing with us so far, but how did you come up with the faster scale? You know, we know it's the acronym for forgetting priorities, anxiety, speeding up, ticked off, exhaustion, and then into relapse. But we'd love to hear a little bit just about how did you identify those categories? You know, early on, uh, how did you realize that you'd really stumbled across a real thing that was um, repeatable from person to person? Okay. Well, it's kind of funny. We were running our first rehab, you know, back in the late 80s, and it was a it was a reentry program. And, and most of our clients, this is in Santa Barbara, we had a YWAM building there we were using. We were YWAM missionaries at the time. And it was a six-month reentry program. And most of our clients were uh, court-ordered, you know, on three strikes. And what we were learning is that in spite of the consequences of all the pressure that society can put on somebody not to go back into an addictive behavior, or in this case, mostly heroin addicts, you know, relapsing, is, is that, you know, these clients had the most probably pressure that the society could put on them. You know, one more relapse, and they were going back to jail for a long period of time. Uh, uh, many of the women had their kids in, in child protective services, so they were going to, you know, lose their kids. But we still had this problem of yeah. chronic relapse in spite of these these severe consequences. So anyway, we had had a client named Maria, and the clients had to work, and 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 so I got Maria a job, and her boss calls me one day and tells me that. Uh, she's, he's going to have to fire her because she's 10 minutes late to work every day. So I go, well, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure this out. I'll just get her up 10 minutes early. And I get her up 10 minutes early, and she's still 10 minutes late. I get her up 20 minutes late, early, and she's still 10 minutes late. So I figure, well, maybe this is going to take a rocket science to figure this out. <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe on. on the way to work, she's getting loaded or something. So anyway, one day I follow her to work. And she has to be at work at 8.30, and it's 8.30, so she's 10 minutes late. So I'm following her down the street, and she's, you know, walking real fast, and she's stressed out, and she's knows she's late, and she's got all this pressure on her that she doesn't lose her job, and, and she's running all this anxiety. And I'm, and I'm following her, you know, and doing her body language, and I go, I'm all amped up and anxious. And then I just said, you know, what would happen if I was 20 minutes early going to – going to work then what would i experience and i slowed down and all of a sudden this whole different world came into my awareness i mean i was aware of these kids playing there's there's puppies next door the, it was santa barbara it was a beautiful day the wind going through the trees there were some birds playing kids at the bus stop you see so what i was seeing was being anxious caused both of her and I, you know, to block out any kind of background information. Okay. And that's what this partnership between dopamine and serotonin, almost all our addictive behaviors are to raise uh, dopamine in our system, which helps us focus. It's like cocaine does uh, and uh, uh, anxiety does it. And it, it makes us have more energy. 
So what I began to see was that if I was Maria and I slowed down, what kind of background information would be coming into my awareness? You know, all the guilt from her kids, all the fear of going back to prison, all her, you know, cravings for drugs and alcohol and her shame and her guilt and her childhood stuff. All that became it came into focus. See? So what I began to see was especially her being a cocaine addict and meth addict was that as she, you know, raised this dopamine or this anxiety it kept her from feeling unwanted thoughts, feelings, and memories. Okay? And it pushed it back out of her awareness. And because to slow down, you know, uh, created a lot of painful, like say, thoughts, feelings, and memories that she didn't want to deal with. And so, um, and then, of course, you know, realizing, like we said before, that this could be the reason why relapses are not only so unconscious, but they're, um, uh, but people aren't aware of relapsing usually just till a few minutes before they relapse. So what I was seeing and beginning to see with the clients that as we look down the faster scale, that they were creating the same neurochemicals that they used in their, in their drug addiction, especially like cocaine and meth by, manipulating their own emotions so if you look at the faster scale of course you know the the first section is for getting priorities okay and what is that it's a change in what's important and it's unconscious and you know we have videos on this and in the change book we have a chapter on secrets okay so secrets is a good example because relapses almost always start with the secrets in other words something has become more important than our recovery plan and a secret is a secret because we know we're doing something that we shouldn't be doing. Okay? But it also creates what? A little bit of anxiety. Okay? A little bit of, well, adrenaline and dopamine. Okay? And then we don't go to the whole faster scale. But if you look at the next step, see, is anxiety. And what does it say? It says getting energy from emotions. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, we worry using profanity, being fearful, resentments playing old negative thoughts, you know, judging, perfectionism, all these things. And as you go down the faster scale, you you get a little bit more and more energy out of each each section. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is, is we have a limited amount of coping neurochemicals. And as we burn them out, we have to do more extreme behaviors and emotions to create them until you get to the place that, where you're you're angry you know and anger is an incredibly powerful anesthetic and it it so what what the kind of the bottom line of the faster scale is is that anything that you do to speed up your body dulls the awareness of physical and emotional pain so when we get to the anxiety section, I'm doing a seminar and I'll say, how many of you have a problem with worrying? Okay. And they'll say, you know, most people raise their hand and I go, well, why do you worry? Because, you know, that's dumb. It just makes you upset and sick and your tears down, you know, your immune system and everything else. Okay. And, you know, we use, we use, you know, 
worry and resentments and all these things because we get a uh, we get energy from it. See? So anything that's you use to speed up your body goes the awareness of physical and emotional pain. So that's that's kind of the 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 way the faster scale works. Hmm. And it takes usually about oh two weeks minimum to go down the faster scale and which is totally unconscious for most clients. Okay. So you've burned up all your coping chemicals and then you get to a place of exhaustion. And when you get to a place of exhaustion, the limbic system begins to take over. Okay? And it says, if I'm exhausted, then I can't cope anymore. If I can't cope, I can't survive. And then if its job is to, is to go into your memory, the hippocampus in your brain, and look for what you did in the past to be able to cope and get through this. And then it creates that unique emotion called a craving. And when you get to the place of craving, a craving will wear you down and it's almost impossible to say no to for any length of time. So what we do with a faster scale is if people go down and identify their their unconscious pre-relapse, you know, emotions and behaviors and and uh, even food as a chemical for coping, okay, that it takes two weeks to get down the faster scale till you get to the place where you're powerless and you relapse. Then if we can have a meeting every week where the clients come in and say, where are you on the faster scale? And, and what do you need to do to get back up in the recovery section? Okay. Then we can prevent relapse real, really prevent relapse before it happens. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Michael, the faster scale is a great tool. It's something that a lot of people use. And especially if you go through pure desire, you use this tool every week. And so, and it, again, it's been something that's super helpful in my life. And so coming from you, the creator of this tool, what would be a couple tips that you'd give someone on how to best use the faster scale? Well, the problem with the faster scale is, is that all these behaviors aren't conscious. And once people start to go down it, they can't see it anymore. So that's why we create these accountability cards. So the, the short version of it is that a client will go down the faster scale and, and identify everything they have done now or in the past that, you know, that has been a problem for them. Or especially, you know, which is what's so cool about it is we use it for when people relapse, we use it as an opportunity to to learn and create a new treatment plan mm-hmm. rather than for you know for for punishment and shame and that's really what works so if a client relapses then when they go down and circle all the things that they did you know with the help of a counselor on the faster scale okay and so those are their unconscious dry relapse patterns and so what they do we have these accountability cards they transfer those those uh, behaviors or emotions to these accountability cards and they have four people in their life that they basically Mm -hmm. say when you see me you know not going to church when you you know see me you know uh you know with a new girlfriend when you see me you know working you know two jobs these are my pre-lapse pre-relapse behaviors in the past and i need to make i need you to make me aware that i'm doing it and so that, that's that's what's really hard, especially for, you know, some Christians a lot, is they think that, you know, 
that this relapse thing is just because people aren't, weren't serious or they weren't trying hard enough, but it really is unconscious. And it's this limbic brain that when we get into a, a place where it believes that we aren't coping and can't survive, and it begins to use all these behaviors, you know, like secrets and workaholism and anger, you know, to help us to be able to cope and push back these unwanted thoughts, feelings, and memories. Hmm. So that's the way it works. And it, it doesn't work as a self-help tool. Okay? And I've had people that have memorized the whole faster scale and they went down it and they go, it's weird. You know, when I was in it, I can't see it. Hmm. And that's the way this survival brain works. It hides the awareness of these behaviors from it because it believes we need it to survive. Mm. So that's where things like denial and confusion and justification, you know, uh, come into uh, uh, helping us not see the pattern that we're in. And all of us have, have you know, have confronted addicts, you know, and, and they just get defensive and they can't see it. And, you know, there, there's nothing we can do because they're in this, in this, you know, angry denial, you know, survival state. So that's what we do is, is if people can make us aware when we're way up in the anxiety or forgetting priorities and make us aware that, oh, you know, I'm in my, my pattern. And we have another process in Genesis, it's called process seven, where when somebody relapses, we, we want to work on both sides of their brain. So they do a cognitive behavior of, what you did, you know, the day you relapsed, the day before, your patterns and all that. And then they also make what we call a deja vu movie script, where they write a movie about their their dry relapse patterns. Say, well, I was doing okay, and then I met Susie. And, and when I met Susie, then I stopped going to my meetings. I started spending too much money, you see. So that's pictorial. So we have both sides of the brain. One is a deja vu experience where, oh, I'm in my movie, you know, and the other one is a cognitive experience where other people can see, you know, uh, the patterns that we've done before that led to relapse. Yeah, Michael, that deja vu movie script is something that uh, I know in my group, as I first went through the Genesis process, just how obvious it became that my pattern was being repeated just over and over. And, and I wonder, you know, one of the great gifts that the Genesis process gives uh, and the faster scale is self-awareness um, and, and self-awareness like I'd never experienced before. But kind of a, a follow-up question to that, uh, what do you say to someone, and this is going off script a little bit here, uh, what do you say to someone that maybe is kind of caught in beating themselves up over their self-awareness because as they become self-aware, maybe they realize that I'm very deceitful. I'm very selfish. I'm very arrogant. I'm, you know, that self-awareness can illuminate our old self and, and almost become a negative thing. So how, how do you help someone that their self-awareness is causing them to beat themselves up? Well, that's where grace comes into it. You know, Nick, it's just, it's, uh, the more you reduce shame, the more you increase recovery, the mm. more you increase mm. shame. It's like putting, you know, gasoline on a fire as far as recovery is concerned. And a lot of Christianity is recovery programs are shame based. You know, it's punishment. Whereas in Genesis, 
we use every behavior, especially relapses, as an opportunity to change and heal. Hmm. So when people do the very thing they don't want to do, if they know somebody that is not going to judge them or condemn them or criticize them, but has the tools to help them understand how they got to a place where they did what they said they would never do again and can take that relapse and turn it into a new treatment plan to plug up these holes, then you reduce shame. And I say shame is one of our our most avoided emotions it's one of our most painful emotions and both psychology and in my experience you know the root of almost all our destructive behaviors and isolating behaviors is to avoid the emotion shame yeah so yeah and so it's 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 basically you know grace Mm -hmm. And, and it's funny because you know christians are the only ones that I know Christian re- rehabs who punish people for relapsing. Huh? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Right? But secular programs, you know, Betty Ford or 12 step AA, you know, you could relapse a hundred times, you know, and you're welcome with open arms without judgment. As long as you have a desire to get sober and clean. Mm-hmm. And, but Christians, especially in the church, you know, they're really afraid to ask for help because they're afraid they're going to get pharisaiticalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like that word? That's yeah. Word. So how do we how yeah. do we change that, Michael? Because I know that's a big passion of yours to help the church be a safe and a healing place, to be a grace place. So what what can we do uh, for churches to move towards being that healing, grace filled place and not? be stuck in a pattern of shame or beating ourselves up? Well, my last two books is, I, I wrote, you know, for for the churches. The one is called The Church Helping or Hurting, and my new one, which isn't out yet, is called Filling the Empty Place. But they're basically helping church people and agencies to understand what's broken in people, how it got broken, and what it takes to heal it. And so... It's it's pretty really simple. If I'm a sex addict and I uh, want to reveal my patterns and my secrets, okay, it it has to be safe for me to do so. Mm-hmm. So the two the two elements that an agency, a person, or a church, you know, needs for someone to be safe to come in and reveal their secrets is first is grace, which we talked about which, you know, which is, you know, Jesus tells us not to judge because the judgments are a log in our eye. And, you know, we can't see the other person because of this, of this log in our eye, you know, which is a screen of looking at it through judgments. And judgment is one of our most fearful uh, experiences that we'll avoid at all, all costs. You know, where judgments create heart wounds, okay? Because judgments... You know, don't judge what you did. They're, they judge the kind of person you were that did it. You see? Well, you're a weak, crummy person. You know, you're just not serious. You don't have enough faith. See, those are all judgments. Mm-hmm. Even uh, even going down, down the freeway and somebody cuts you off, right? 
you don't say, oh, that person cut me off. You say, you blankety blank, <laughs> you know, you call them some kind of name, see? And, and you're not looking at what they did. You're looking at the kind of person they were. Michael's been following me on the freeway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, but I'm sure Christians don't use those kind of words. <laughs> of but, course you know, not. We, we've heard them before. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and the other problem is competency. So even if you have grace, I also have to, if I'm going to come and take the risk of sharing my shame and my sin with you, I have to believe that you're competent, that you have the knowledge, education, understanding, and experience to help me with my problem. So, so this is uh, what it takes, you know, for churches to do that. I learned this. I was doing a uh, a luncheon, you know, a speaker at a luncheon for about 40, 50 pastors. It was our their monthly city luncheon, right? And so they're eating lunch, and then I'm getting up to talk, and I'm going on and on about my speech about how to make churches safe for wounded people. And this Baptist guy raised his hand, and he said, his pastor, he said, Michael, you don't understand. And I said, yeah, probably a lot of things, but what in particular? (laughs) What are you talking about? You know? And kind of, they're all shaking their heads like they do something (laughs) I didn't know, okay? And he said, well, we all went to seminary here. And I go, yeah, I still don't. And they all, you know, nodding, shaking their heads. They understand. I didn't get it. I go, I don't understand. He goes, in seminary, they only taught us how to administrate, not how to minister. And and the light just went on for me, okay, that trying to get Genesis in through the pastors. And so so what he said is we don't want to attract these kind of people into our church because we don't have the education, experience, or knowledge, or programs on how to help them. And so, you know, that was really insightful to me. And, uh, of course, in, my, in both my books, you know, the last one, especially uh, the one that's out now, it's a church helping or hurting. There's dozens of stories in there, you know, real stories from real people that people who went to church, you know, asking for help, and how so many of them just got nailed so they never would go to church again, mm. you know, and it's shamed and, and everybody knew about it. There's no confidentiality. Okay. And then there's a lot of stories you know, about the same people or others going to a church that was a good church and, and how they got help and got freedom from it. And so, you know, helping understand, you know, the difference, you know, in a grace competency church rather than a, you know, judgment punishment church. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. That's and the good. reason they use judgment and punishment is because they just don't have the tools. If you don't have the tools to help people with these kind of sinful behaviors, mm-hmm. then all you have left is judgments and punishment. So, Michael, off of that, I mean, I think that when you get into stuff, and we get this a lot at Pure Desire. I mean, we use the faster skill, and we use a clinical foundation for a lot of what we talk about, and that's always partnered with a biblical truth. But very quickly, it's easy to react for someone as a believer to think that, like, well, isn't all that I need Jesus? This just seems a little self-help to me. Um, so how do you help people connect the dots in that sense? That you're connecting not only, you know, what uh, what's going on in your, in your soul as far as a spiritual perspective uh, and having those pieces of Jesus and scripture and prayer and biblical community, but also connecting that with the truth about your brain and how trauma and how difficulty in your life function and how those play out in addictions. How do you connect those two for people? Well, it's difficult because there's, you know, 
there's so many denominations and there's so many diverse theologies about, mm -hmm. you know, how God's supposed to, you know, work and heal people. But it's the bottom line, if we could change on our own, we would have. And, you know, basically we all want to get delivered, right? Yes, please. <laughs> we want to go up to altar call and, you know, I'm an angry or addict or sex addict or whatever. And I just get delivered and I don't have a problem anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, occasionally that happens, but Genesis is for people who don't get delivered. And in my experience over the years, the people who don't, who just get delivered aren't really able to help anybody else because they don't have the grace and the mercy, you know, to have having relapsed and had to humble themselves and ask for help and try and find tools and, you know, and life skills, you know, to overcome their problem. And so I think a God, you know, allows a lot of us to go through the ups and downs of the pains of relapse because it gives us empathy and understanding and real tools, you know, to help other people. And so how it really works, you know, to make it really kind of a short, okay, is that we are made for relationships with God and people. And when we when we lose our ability, which usually happens in the first couple of years of life, when we lose our ability to bond, trust, and attach to other people, usually because of abuse or neglect, okay, then if we can't get our needs met the way God designed us from relationships with people because those relationships have been painful, okay, then we have to learn to self-gratify. Okay? Uh, but we're designed to get gratification from relationships. Okay? So one of my two bottomest bottom lines is, this is the second bottomest bottom line. I have a lot of <laughs> bottom lines. Okay? <laughs> They're all fighting to be number one. There you go. You know? But this is number two, and it, there's a lot in it. You can think about this and, and kind of meditate on it, that all addiction is self-gratification, okay? And, you know, I've tried to find a flaw in that because I'm like a lawyer, and I haven't been able to find a flaw in it. All addiction, especially, of course, sex addiction, is self-gratification, okay? And so the insight into this, you know, this key thought is that if all addiction self-gratification, then all recovery, and recovery means, it's not sobriety, recovery means to return to a former healthy state. Yeah. Okay. And a lot of people say they're in recovery, but they're really not, they're in sobriety. Huh. And so, it, it, and so if all addiction is self-gratification, so to recover from self-gratification is to learn to get in touch with those needs and get them met from relationships. Hmm. That's so good. So it was it was trusting and being betrayed, okay, that caused us to gravitate towards not trusting other people in self-gratification. And so the bottomest bottom line of what recovery really is is the process of all recovery for all of us as human beings is a process of learning to trust again. It's by not trusting that causes the isolation. And the, and the most dynamic feature of self-destruct behavior is isolation. If you can break the power of isolation, which you look at down the faster scale, each section creates more and more isolation from God and people. 
if you can prevent isolation, you can prevent relapse. Hmm. And that's why we can't do recovery alone. Hmm. That's such a good statement, Michael. Because we just can't see it ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. You're exactly right. Yeah. Well, well, sometime. And also the limbic system, its job is to keep us from taking risk because risk has to do with fear. And it says, mm. you know, fear is a survival emotion. So we want, you know, to, to avoid, you know, uh, uh, you know, fear. Okay? And it's not safe to take risk alone. So the limbic system actually won't let us take the risk of giving up a coping behavior, which is scary, right? <laughs> you know, how am I going to cope? It won't actually let us do it when we're alone. So it takes a, a safe group, our counselor, but usually a group, okay, that allows us to be able to make changes, even if we're willing. Yeah. Well, sometime, Michael, we're going to have to have you share your whole list of bottom lines. We'll bring you back for a podcast on that. That's and so good. Uh, we have appreciated your work so much. Uh, if those who are listening want to check out the Genesis process, you can find it uh, on our website at Pure Desire or uh, go to Michael Dye's website at the Genesis process and uh, find his other books as well. I know you'd really benefit from uh, checking those out. Uh, Michael, we like to end all of our podcasts the same way, just to ask our guests to give a final word of encouragement um, or maybe just that, that one last thing that you would like to leave listeners with uh, as we wrap up today. So, uh, Michael, what would that final word or that final encouragement be from you today? Well, I think the final word for me is what I'm doing with my books and when I speak is to try and give people hope. Huh. Hope is a very, very powerful emotion. Okay. It, you're a different person when you have it than when you don't have it. Okay? And hope comes from, from being able to change. So the encouragement I would say to people, you know, it's the first time in history that we actually know what's broken and why we do the very things we don't want to do. Okay? And, and because we understand not only what got broken, how it affected it, affected us and in both the, the relational and the spiritual you know uh, path of getting well that there is hope because you know we if we partner with the Lord and change this heart and limbic system you're going to you know be free and that's what I say with the change the first time in history that if you do this process I can guarantee you will change and that sounds kind of grandiose, but it simply is this. If you identify a fear, which is a, a self-sabotaging, you know, distorted belief system, okay, and you move towards that fear with support and accountability, I guarantee you will change. But it's not easy. <laughs> it sounds simple, yeah, right. but it takes it takes tremendous courage mm -hmm. to override the limbic system yeah. that believes basically if I trust people, I'm going to be betrayed and hurt. Mm. And that's why the grace and competency thing is so important. There, Gosh, there's just like so many good nuggets in here. I'm so thankful, uh, Michael, for you just hanging out with us. Uh, look, it, learning how to break free and stay free from addictions. And I love, Michael, you're talking about the difference between recovery and sobriety. 
when we can actually dive in and figure out what's going on, that's not going to be a fun process. It's not going to be a short process. Um, but Michael, you are on the front lines of helping people break free and finding what's at the root of their addiction, addressing those cravings, those fears. Uh, and so if listener, if you want more information on the Genesis process, or you want to pick up a copy, go to puredesire.org slash Genesis process. And for more information on Michael and all he's doing and his resources, it's genesisprocess.org. Uh, Michael, we very much appreciate your time with us today. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Yeah, thank you, Nick. I really appreciate what you guys are doing and and how we're working together. And I think we're going to, you know, be more successful together than we were separately. That's know? right. And, and especially I admire you guys because it's it's the overwhelming epidemic of sex addiction is like an undercurrent, like an undertone in our society that people don't 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 see it, but it's destroying so many lives. Yeah. I mean, I read earlier that 60% of all divorces in the United States now have, you know, pornography and chat room as a major issue in the divorce. Yeah, it is. So, so you guys, you know, well, we'll keep have doing job it. security. We'll keep doing what <laughs> yeah. we do, and, and you stay around and keep doing what you do, all right, Michael? All right. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Pure Desire podcast. If you like what you're hearing and want to keep up with the podcast, please subscribe. You can also rate and review our podcast and let us know how we're doing. For more information, check out our website, puredesire.org, and you can follow us on social media at puredesirepdmi. Once again, that's at puredesirepdmi. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Pure Desire podcast. For more information, check out our website, www.puredesire.org. Check in each week for new content on the podcast, and we pray that it will help you find hope and freedom on your journey to purity. Here's what's coming up next week on the Pure Desire Podcast. Every woman that takes a breath. This is going to be one of our best resources that we've ever put out. They're wanting to be married. They're wanting to be sexual. And they're saying, what does this even look like? Is it even okay to have these discussions? I think that's one of the things that's interesting about women who struggle is that we don't take good care of ourselves. Right. We, we are the last person, and sometimes we are taking care of everybody else, but we're the last person that we take care of. And that, I think, is my favorite part about these resources.